Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of Grassroots Environmental Education. I'm your host, Doug Wood, here with my co-host, Patty Wood. Well, fall has arrived, the heat waves are over, the trees are beginning to change their leaves, the World Series is around the corner, and the predominant color of the season is, wait for it, pink. Yes, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Breast cancer groups like Susan G. Komen for the Cure are partnering with giant corporations like Avon to sponsor big feel-good events and encouraging consumers to buy things with the pink ribbon on the label as a gesture of support in the fight against breast cancer. And the healthcare industry is out in force with radio ads and print ads urging women to get their mammograms. And so it is every year. So with all this attention and all this money, are we making any progress? Sadly, the answer is no. And to find out why we're not making progress, last week we caught up with Dr. Samantha King, who's written a fascinating and amazing book called Pink Ribbons, Inc. It's an expose of the breast cancer industry and the cultural transformation of breast cancer in the United States over the past few decades. Here's our interview. The book starts in the 1970s and a time in the United States when breast cancer was highly stigmatized and it was thought best dealt with privately in an isolation. Over the past three or four decades, that understanding has really shifted. And there was a a moment in time where the disease became quite politicized and understood as an issue for public debate and political organizing. And and that was uh, through the 1980s and into the early 1990s. But at that time, uh, large organizations like the the Coleman Foundation for the Cure uh, began to join with corporations to raise money and awareness around the disease. That has in turn led to this transformation that has really depoliticized the disease and uh, we've come to understand it in in some contexts as as a growth opportunity as a, a, a stage in life that all women are inevitably going to experience at some time and uh, it's a culture of survivorship that depends on the marketing of pink ribbon products and the staging of these large, splashy fundraising events. And I argue that's been really detrimental in terms of understanding the disease, of, of preventing it, and in fact, of making any real progress. Well, and in fact, um, if, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the statistics, we really have not made that much progress. Um, in fact, I think that we are, we are seeing maybe that there are <clears throat> the survival um, rates may be a little bit higher, but we are actually um, diagnosing more and more women at younger and younger ages. Absolutely, and the public tends to be surprised when when they learn that because the overly optimistic attitude towards the disease that's been created through these marketing campaigns belies the the reality of the situation. Is it? I know that you're in Canada right now. Or do you have a similar situation in Canada? Absolutely, and we have a similar breast cancer culture uh, modeled very much on 
uh, what you have there in the United States and incidence rates have climbed similarly uh, in the post-war era. We, of course, have a smaller population, so the mortality rates are lower overall, but uh, they're similar percentage-wise as they are uh, in the United States. Of course, the differences between the two healthcare systems uh, makes a large difference in terms of how people experience the treatment of the disease, but unfortunately, the, the pink ribbon culture around it uh, remains quite similar. And, and I think that that's true in, 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 in many other countries around the world where this is, um, this is also um, taking hold, maybe a little bit more slowly. But um, I mean, we have pink ribbon campaigns, you know, all over the planet. Is that right? Absolutely. They've been around for some time in places like the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, but organizations like Coleman for the Cure, Avon, uh, the drug company AstraZeneca have really made an effort in the last decade or so to try and expand uh, their approach to the disease overseas. Uh, we see a, a special growth right now in the Middle East, uh, work on the part of uh, Coleman and, and Avon to uh, do breast cancer marketing and awareness there. So let's just, let's just pick out one of those that you just mentioned, <clears throat> and I'd like to do AstraZeneca. Um, have, you, have you just talk a little bit about AstraZeneca's background and, and what they do and who they are and how they you know, might be compromised here? AstraZeneca is the maker of the best-selling drug tamoxifen, and uh, they are actually the creators of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. They created that uh, campaign in the 1980s as a way to encourage people to get screened, to get mammography, which of course would then in turn lead to more diagnosis and, and more more market for their for their drug products. But uh, what people often don't realize is that uh, at the time they were part of uh, one of the largest chemical companies in the world, Imperial Chemical. Uh, they still today are uh, connected to chemical, the chemical industries uh, and produce chemicals that are known carcinogens. So let's talk a little bit about what you call consumer-oriented philanthropy. And, and it seems to be the way more and more causes are being uh, presented to the American public. Is it, How did that get started, and it, are you seeing this as a continuing kind of paradigm for uh, philanthropy? Well, interestingly enough, it wasn't until the 1950s that it was even legal for corporations in the U.S. to donate money, uh, publicly held companies, because the idea was that all money should remain in the hands of the shareholders, uh, had to go to court for that to happen. Uh, and, but, he, but up until the 1980s, corporate donations were uh, seen as something that was the prerogative of high-ranking executives and not tied in any direct way to the bottom line. And in the 1980s, you see uh, that shift in the development of cause-related marketing specifically whereby uh, products are sold with the promise that a percentage of the sale price will go to X and Y cause. And uh, cause-related marketing is one aspect of strategic philanthropy or philanthrocapitalism, as some people call it, uh, whereby the altruistic uh, aspect of corporate citizenship has become very closely tied to profit-making. And breast cancer is really the poster child of, of cause-related marketing in the United States and has been for 
going on two decades now. European Union has actually banned certain chemicals that are estrogenic or endocrine disrupting chemicals. And so Avon has to uh, has to meet that standard uh, and take those chemicals out of their products that they sell in the uh, in the European Union, whereas they continue to sell those products in the United States, and I don't know in Canada, but I know in the United States, that have these endocrine disrupting or these estrogenic um, chemicals in them, which are directly linked to uh, a, a higher um, you know, incidence or risk of breast cancer. Absolutely, and it is the same in Canada. They still they sell those same products uh, with the toxic ingredients that they are not permitted to use in Europe. And Avon, among other leading cosmetics companies who have a high profile in the pink ribbon industry, have refused to sign the Safe Cosmetics Pact uh, in the United States, which uh, which entails. Uh, making your your products safe for consumers. So it really is hypocrisy that they would be raising money for breast cancer and at the same time producing uh, these carcinogenic products. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. And the same go- holds true for 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 certain yogurts. Um, I know YoPlay yogurt. Um, there was an issue there. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, you know some of these other companies that you know get get really involved in the in the whole pink ribbon. Um, you know, campaign uh, during October and actually even, you know, during, you know, the rest of the year too, they've expanded it. It used to just be October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, And and now this this goes on practically year round. Have you noticed that? Absolutely. It's one of the interesting things to me as a researcher that although the amount of critical media coverage and public attention questioning the pink ribbon industry has really grown exponentially over the last five or six years. We've also seen the expansion of of pink ribbon marketing, as you say, to all year round. And that has partly to do with the fact that October was uh, in the minds of some corporate marketers becoming too swamped with pink ribbon <laughs> products. Uh, and so they've now gone to a, a year round model. So it's continuous. I mean, so it, you never get away from it, so to speak. I mean, they even illuminated the White House in pink. And you see car bumper stickers and, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable what they, what they can do with this, um, with this pink ribbon um, campaign here as far as marketing products. But how do you question all of this? Um, because, you know, people are earnestly purchasing these products thinking that they are really contributing to finding a cure for this disease. Disease, which may have may have affected their their daughter or their or their aunt or their sister or their grandmother or their mother and how do you question all of this without having your own compassion about this disease and about people who are afflicted um, questioned absolutely people are compassionate and and they are trusting and they they believe that their contribution is making a difference but I think what we have to say to people is that this is actually not making a difference and it may in fact be doing more harm than good. If we're encouraging people to shop, to buy more stuff, uh, some of which is toxic in response to a disease that is very clearly linked to 
uh, consumer lifestyles in the industrialized West, we, we've got a problem here. And I think once people actually learn how little difference all this money and all this attention has made, I think they will begin to understand that this might not be the best approach. I also want to say that in addition to putting pressure on these corporations to get the toxins out of their products, we have to turn a critical eye to the breast cancer organizations with whom they're partnering. And in, in my mind, in terms of the pink ribbon industry, they're, equal, they're just as culpable. Uh, you know, these, co- these companies have to have someone to partner with for this to work. I, well, I shouldn't actually say that. There are many breast cancer promotions where you can't tell where the money's going at all. Um, but the larger brand name corporations, the, the, the multinationals, they all partner with breast cancer organizations, and I think we have to to think about that connection, too. You're listening to Green Street from Grassroots Environmental Education. Let's talk about where the money goes. How much goes into treatment? How much goes into prevention? I mean, you know, prevention seems like the the best thing here if we can stop breast cancer before it starts, and I think everybody would agree with that, but I think people are surprised to know that, you know, where their money is really going. Yeah. Well, there's so many issues there. One is that the public has been sold on mammography, uh, even though more and more evidence suggests that it's an extremely imperfect tool. And it's not a form of prevention. It's a form of detection. Uh, So they've been sold on mammography and they've been sold on cure, uh, that the cure is the answer. And so uh, we're not encouraged to think about prevention. And only about 5% of all money that's raised goes on real prevention. About 15% goes on what is called preventive research, but a lot of that research is looking at things like exercise, physical activity, which have actually been shown to have pretty small effect when it comes to a disease like breast cancer. Only 5% of it goes towards looking at environmental causes, and that really needs to change. The problem, of course, is that the people who fund breast cancer research, uh, the the pharmaceutical companies, the, the large breast cancer foundations that partner with uh, large corporations that don't have an interest, primary interest in public health, are not very interested in funding that that uh, that part of the uh, the research agenda, and so we just see the repetition of the same kinds of studies over and over again, and then huge gaps in the kinds of questions that might actually make a difference in terms of uh, the numbers of people getting diagnosed, but also in terms of survival. I mean, there are questions that are not asked around survival that also are, uh, and cure or treatment that uh, are neglected. Could you actually clarify the survival um, statistics for us? Because I think, you know, they just hear more and more women are surviving this disease, and it's because of all of this effort that we put into the research and so on and so on, and the, you know, the public, you know, recognition of this. But where do these survival rates come from, and what do they actually mean? Well, one thing it's important to remember is that more women are surviving in part because more women are getting diagnosed. Uh, and also because of this culture of survivorship that's grown up around the disease, breast cancer survivors are much more visible in our culture. But if you actually look at the statistics, it has, it's only been in recent years, very recently, that we've seen some incremental increases in survivorship, and that's good for the individual women who are benefiting uh, from these treatments. But it's ve- the, 
the numbers are actually very small and the problem is that still more and more people are being diagnosed and uh, the available, there are many kinds of breast cancers for which the available treatments simply don't work. I'd like to actually talk about the word survivor. I know in your book you have said that survivor has replaced the word patient, um, especially when we talk about women with breast cancer. And, you know, we don't usually talk about, you know, someone who has prostate cancer or someone who has leukemia or um, liver cancer or, you know, a brain tumor. We don't say that they're survivors. But that word sticks when we're talking about breast cancer. When did that get real traction? It's very interesting, uh, you know, and of course, some people will argue that this, the term survivor is, you know, it's very hopeful, it's more active, it's less passive than patient, and, and certainly uh, there are people who would argue it's better than victim, and I would agree with that, which was very common terminology um, up until the 1980s, uh, but uh, the, the word survivor was began to be used by organizations like the Komen Foundation by their corporate partners um, in the in the early 1990s to, uh, to in, in part to, as a way to talk about the disease that sounded more hopeful. I mean, you're not going to be able to move products if you're talking about victims or patients even. Uh, but there was also a, a decision uh, made uh, to... Uh, to use to use the term to survivor to describe uh, people from the moment of diagnosis. So, the National Coalition on Survivorship, other organizations came into being at, around that time, in the early mid 1990s, and began to use this label from the moment of diagnosis, and. Uh, as 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 many of your listeners will know, uh, the you know things are pretty uncertain uh, from the moment of diagnosis for for many different kinds of cancers, and I've talked to lots of women who have uh, a real problem with with this terminology. I mean the the uncertainty, uh, the pain, the hopelessness, the suffering that they experience. Uh, during their cancer diagnosis and treatment uh, is not something that for them lines up with this this label of survivorship. It's also been said by critic Barbara Ehrenreich and others that the term survivor denigrates uh, people who don't survive. It somehow suggests that they haven't fought hard enough, and and that's a real real problem. We actually watched the movie that was made and released just recently based on your book, and there was a support group that they kept coming back to throughout the the movie of uh, women who had stage four metastatic disease who had a very different view of the pink ribbon movement. It was That was the most compelling part of the movie um, from my perspective. It was really, really just heartbreaking. And who's listening to them? I mean, they really don't have a voice in this, do they? Absolutely. As one of them says in the movie, we're like the angel of death in in the room. And uh, I actually was at a screening of the film in Illinois last week, and there was a very young woman there who has stage four. She also 
liked that part of the film. It's also, I, you know, my, I think it's the most powerful part. I, I agree with you on that. And, and uh, she said for her, the pink ribbon symbolizes a noose. Mm. Wow. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, it was, it was, it was chilling to hear that, but, but it makes sense. It makes sense. And there's no room for any acknowledgement of, of death, uh, or even suffering in the dominant pink ribbon culture. Yeah. It's, there's a kind of a, a cheerfulness that pervades the, uh, or that is supposed to pervade the, the pink ribbon campaign. Let's talk a little bit about being happy. I mean, breast cancer survivors and, and supporters are always, they have these rallies and everybody's, you know, so positive and so cheerful, like they're winning the battle. I think you called it the, the tyranny of cheerfulness. Yes, and that uh, phrase came out of my experience of talking to women who didn't identify with the cheerfulness, who felt that it was compulsory but also completely alienating uh, for many of them. And, of course, what it does is mislead the public really about the progress that's being made. It serves the large organizations and the large breast cancer organizations, the corporations, the the research community very well. Uh but 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 it but it has all these these troubling effects. We have been to a couple of these events. We were doing some, some videography and interviewing some women there and one of the questions that we asked over and over is, what do you know about breast cancer prevention? Mm. And every single one said, get your mammogram. Oh, yeah. Every single yeah. one said, get your mammogram. So yeah. that's a kind of an, that's the underlying message in all of this, too, isn't and it's, it? And it's a dangerous message. Yeah, it, it is a dangerous message. I mean, there, you know, there are, you know, five or six different, you know, diagnostic tools that can be used today. And the only one that actually increases your risk of breast cancer is the is a mammogram which is which is ionizing radiation which is everyone agrees is a is a a risk factor in breast cancer women really need to know not only how to prevent this disease but women need to know the safest way to detect this and the safest screening methods and mm-hmm. how you know in your opinion do we do we shift the conversation here it's very hard. The message about mammography, uh, uh, you know, has been around since at least the 1940s, and and there are so many powerful organizations that are invested in that message, in spite of the fact that, as you say, mammography is unsafe, and around the world now. Uh, Governments, uh, healthcare organizations are acknowledging its limitations. I mean, here in Canada, uh, I'm 42. I've, it's never been suggested to me that I have a mammogram. I was undergoing some medical treatment in the United States recently, and the nurse I spoke to there was absolutely shocked that I hadn't had a baseline mammogram. And I told her, you know, that's, uh, I, I haven't had one. I don't intend to um, for, for a long while yet. Uh, and and it, she had, was not even aware. Uh, it seemed to me that there was a, a debate about 
this issue. So I think there's really a lot of work to do, but but it's also, as Barbara Brenner says in the film, Breast Cancer Activist Barbara Brenner, it's actually not a hard message to understand. We just have to get that message out there. And that means uh, calling on organizations like the Coleman Foundation to uh, to be more honest, uh, and 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 it's in in large part to to their work that that the women that you interviewed, I'm sure, are are under the impression that mammography is the best prevention. So we have to keep that pressure on. And what kind of reaction do you get, Samantha, when you talk to uh, people who are you know wearing the pink ribbon and they're out there rallying? Do you talk to them about what they're doing, and what's the reaction when you do? It's interesting. Sometimes people are very surprised that I would even question the efficacy of the pink ribbon on this mode of approaching the disease. I found especially actually talking to people who work in workplaces where where they do breast cancer fundraising, when I ask why they picked breast cancer, they haven't often even considered that question. Uh, and I think that says a lot right there. Uh, but I also have been so pleasantly surprised by the number of people who have said to me, I'm doing this thing because my colleagues encourage me to do it or because of a family member who's really invested in it. But I felt uncomfortable about it, and I haven't been quite sure why. And so I honestly think that uh, my work and the work of activists in organizations like Breast Cancer Action, uh, the film itself is tapping into uh, percolating discomfort, but that people just haven't necessarily either had the felt able to uh, or haven't had a larger context for understanding their discomfort and a way to articulate that. And, and that's the really hopeful thing, I think, about the film especially, uh, that it really has the potential to, to change the conversation around breast cancer. You're listening to Green Street from Grassroots Environmental Education. Considering all that you know, are you optimistic about where we're going to be headed in, let's say, in the next five years in the breast cancer effort? I have very mixed feelings about that. I, I would like to be more optimistic. I think that the recent criticism that the Komen Foundation has been subject to has been helpful in terms of starting a conversation around what it is that these large breast cancer organizations are up to. But my fear is that while the Komen Foundation might disappear, crumble, uh, in the face of the public mistrust. Really? This, this, <laughs> that would be... Well, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that because they're so, you know, they're so dominant and they've really taken such a, uh, you know, they're such a public, uh, almost institution, just like, you know, motherhood and apple pie and the Susan Komen Foundation. Yes, but they're, the numbers of participants in their races to the cure have fallen dramatically uh, since the Planned Parenthood debacle early this year when they made a decision to, to defund Planned Parenthood that was quickly reversed. Uh, so, I, well, I think they're in trouble. My fear is that their model of approaching disease will just be taken up by some other disease constituency or some other organization because what we're not questioning is this entire approach 
to research. We're not questioning the focus on a cure. We're not questioning that raising money is the answer to everything. We're not questioning why it is that we don't talk about prevention and the environment. And so that that's I, I, that's what makes me me pessimistic is that what you know that that we're not getting to the really meaty questions that that might bring about change. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that around breast cancer specifically, uh, the 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 rumblings, the resistance has the potential to grow into to something bigger. It feels like there's real momentum there, uh, but, but 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 we have to also uh, question the border structure of our society, and of course that's a much harder thing to do. I want to pick out another thing in your book in chapter three, uh, which is titled "Stamping Out Breast Cancer." You talk about the new stamp, actually the postage stamp, that uh, that actually says on it, "Breast Cancer." you know, fund the fight, find a cure. And then at the the beginning of the chapter, you have a quote from our postmaster general says, so often when we read about breast cancer, we say, what can I do? And now there's an answer by this stamp. And then that was repeated or that sentiment by Hillary Rodham Clinton, who is, um, you know, is kind of a role model to many, many women and who is highly educated Um, And she says, starting this week, all Americans will be able to open up their hearts and mailboxes and help stamp out breast cancer once and for all. I mean, you wrote it. (laughs) You wrote this chapter. Um, Can you comment on on this kind of uh, pressure even by our government to to get people to, to buy something to help stamp out breast cancer? Well, one of the larger points of of my book is that this this move towards consumer-oriented philanthropy and and fundraising as the answer to 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 health and and well-being is a result of a partnership between corporations, nonprofit organizations, and the state. This is about shifting responsibility from collective uh, approaches, taxpayer-funded approaches, to to private consumers and corporations. Um, the breast cancer stamp was the first stamp in the history of the United States to be sold at a rate above the letter rate to be a fundraising tool. And that money went to, ironically, the Department of Defense Breast Cancer Research Program. Uh, the second stamp, and only there's only two, that was uh, created as a fundraising tool was the 9-11 stamp. So I think it really says something about the place of breast cancer in the American public imagination, its prominence and its importance. Right. Uh, yeah, the other thing I would say about those kinds of messages, uh, this this idea that we're going to get rid of breast cancer entirely, uh, there are campaigns right now that with, with clocks counting down to the days that we're going to see a world without breast cancer. And uh, while that, sounds fantastic. We're certainly not going to get there if we carry on the way we are right now. We have to be looking at prevention and uh, and we have to change the way we uh, we organize our, our society. Otherwise, the, that's that's uh, that's just pie in the sky. And 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 a comment, if you could, on on these these leaders, these women leaders like Hillary Rodham Clinton, um, and you know, and other uh, very um, 
you know, uh, influential public figures who certainly can understand the difference between, well, let's say, for instance, detection and prevention. I mean, anybody can understand that, you know, you get a mammogram, but, you know, and you find out you have breast cancer. Well, that's, you know, that's that's not prevention. Um, that's just finding out, you know, whether or not you have breast cancer. Um, I mean, primary prevention is what is what we're looking for here. It's yeah. not in the conversation. No, and my argument is around Hillary Clinton was this happened at a time when uh, she, her husband was president. Uh, she was too smart, <laughs> too involved uh, in in policy decisions in the in the minds of many media pundits. And breast cancer work presented a safer alternative, and uh, and that's that's a real problem. It speaks to the way that feminism has been removed from the breast cancer movement, in fact, from women's health in general. I was just uh, talking at an event earlier this week where we were talking about a women's health movement without feminism. And uh, and this is this breast, the breast cancer movement and the depoliticization of the issue, the, its construction as something safe and as American as apple pie plays a large part in that. Let me ask you, the, the subtitle on your book, Pink Ribbons, Inc., is Breast Cancer and the Politics of Philanthropy. Which one got you to write this book, breast cancer or the politics of philanthropy? Both, actually. I had had a longstanding interest in women's health when I was at the point of writing my doctoral dissertation, which is what the book comes out of, and had previously done work on HIV and some other health issues and at that time also began noticing this proliferation of pink ribbon fundraising events and products on the shelves of stores and it just seemed to me that it was something that needed investigation. I didn't see other other people questioning it uh, and, and uh, although Breast Cancer Action was doing great work at that time uh the the broader system of which this was a part, the broader shift towards philanthropy as a r- appropriate response to health issues, um, I felt needed some attention, and that's what got me started on this. And Barbara Ehrenreich, of course, was very uh, eloquent about the the whole idea of not only cheerfulness, but I think she also talked about this idea of, you know, you're not a good citizen if you're not participating in this pink ribbon campaign, or let me flip it around. If you are participating in the pink ribbon campaign, it's kind of a badge of, of good citizenship. It's, it's, it's gotten to that, to that point. And, uh, and if you think that uh, political protest or questioning the status quo is actually more effective uh, you don't get that same level of, of respect. And that has to do with the downsizing, really, of our public sphere, I think, and, and of what we, what, how we understand good citizenship. And so, so changing that is also a really important part of this puzzle, I think. When people want to know more about this, where do you, where do you point them online? Yeah, so certainly Breast Cancer Action's website, they also have produced a Think Before You Pink toolkit, which is uh, a fantastic resource for people wanting to get involved in doing activism, whether 
small or big, there's something for everyone in there. There's also actually a great organization up here in Canada by the same name, Breast Cancer Action Montreal, and they've, they're really focused on envir- environmental breast cancer politics uh, and have great resources on there around uh, cosmetics especially. Uh, they also do a, a really nice workshop on breast cancer marketing cosmetics, and you can download a lot of those resources there. Uh, so, so those are the 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 big two that I would recommend. There are also, actually, I should say, some fantastic blogs out there, um, including one uh, by the author Gail Sulik. She wrote a book called Pink Ribbon Blues, and uh, she's doing some great work. Uh, keeping tags on the Coleman Foundation and, and other organizations in the pink ribbon industry. If people uh, Google Gail Sulik, they'll, they'll find that site. You've been listening to Green Street, a project of grassroots environmental education. Our guest has been Dr. Samantha King, author of Pink Ribbons, Inc. That's it for this edition of Green Street. Thanks for listening. Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.